Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, John. Ready to talk about movies once again for the last time this year. How are you doing? I am on a much-needed break from a hell week at work, so I'm happy to be here. And uh, speaking of the last time of the year for 2021, it is, of course, uh, December, which means that lots of people and lots of different... uh, ways are looking back on the year and for our end of the year stuff uh we decided that instead of trying to recap uh the year in any sort of meaningful fashion we thought we would just uh try and catch up on a couple of movies that we've been sort of meaning to get to um but had otherwise put off for whatever reasons uh chris want to elaborate on that a little bit yeah, so um, originally we had another thing in mind. We were going to do um, something a little bit different for the end of the year with some guests. Uh, that kind of fell through at the last minute. So when we were scrambling, um, I had taken a look at uh, the huge uh, back pile of Criterion Blu-rays that I have bought and never watched and said, you know what would be a great idea? I need to start getting through some of these, so why don't we do a uh, Criterion catch-up, if you will. Just pick a Criterion disc that you may own and maybe you haven't gotten to watching yet. I'll do the same and uh, that'll be it. And as I was kind of going through my discs, I had thought, you know, that might be a good kind of uh, regular column to start kind of hitting on. It's got the alliteration right there, so I mean, it's already a little snappy. So consider this the, um, the progenitor to next year recurring column criterion catch-up. Well, I will endeavor to finally watch uh, all of the Blu-rays that I have bought and then just put on a shelf never to look at again. <laughs> uh, so that's really where this where this came through. But what it turned out, I thought, kind of interesting is there is a little bit of a theme involved in our choices, um, especially in terms of setting. Uh, there is some cool little parallels that we'll talk about Um so uh, why don't we just jump right into it, John? Uh, starting with, uh, we'll go with my pick first, which is 1947's Nightmare Alley. If you're um, still keeping track of what's coming out in current cinema, um, Guillermo del Toro, I I, I think a favorite uh, writer-director of both of ours, has um, his version of Nightmare Alley um, based on the novel by William Lindsay um, Gresham uh, coming out right as we speak. We're recording this on the 18th, so it just came out, at least in America, it came out yesterday. Um, I want to talk about the original 1947 film, which came out on the Criterion Collection a couple of months ago. This... um, um, 1947, directed by Edmund Golding, starring Tyrone Power. Um, and this is the story of kind of a grifter con man who works in the carnival, um, in the traveling carnival and kind of falls in with some characters uh, and just basically does everything he can to take advantage of them. So uh, Stanton Carlisle is a... Uh, very handsome, very smooth talking guy who works the uh, mentalist uh, gig at this traveling carnival and learns of this really kind of great code trick password type of deal where um, you can really embellish the act and do it really anywhere, do it blindfolded, do it in the crowd. Um, and he finagles his way toward learning this code. 
And then, uh, in typical film noir fashion, this is very much a film noir, um, goes and, uh, by dint of his greed and his callousness and the way that he treats other people, eventually just spirals, um, into this, uh, horrible situation that, uh, does not end well for him. So, um, a couple things to note. Tyrone Power, if you're not sure who he is, uh, a huge matinee, uh, star of the 30s and 40s, probably most prominently known. He was Zorro, um, in the forties. And that kind of, uh, that kind of role launched him into a very, very similar cadences like Errol Flynn and people of that ilk. He was always playing the swashbuckling hero. Um, he had always had much grander designs as an actor than that. He had been on Broadway. He's had a lot of stage time, um, and really wanted to do more meaty, weighty roles. So he actually fought when, the novel came out by William Lindsay Gresham. He fought to get the right to this and to get um, 20th Century Fox to actually go ahead and make this film. Um, the movie, for reasons we'll talk about, just in terms of its content and its real dark kind of tenor, um, was pretty much a bomb at the box office. Uh, the studio didn't get behind it. Um, there were some definite changes made to it, which I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, but powers to the day that he died, uh, which sadly was only 10 years later, he died at the age of 44, always stood by that this was his favorite performance and this was his greatest role. Um, and finally now having a chance to see it, um, it's a it's a powerhouse performance. There's a, I definitely want to talk about plot, and I definitely want to talk about kind of um, the film noir elements and and darkness and how this this movie is shot and filmed, and and I definitely want to talk about its ending. But the thing that I come away with this with is um, just a really brave and different movie for the time. It, it's rare that you see something where um, there's a real eeriness to it. I mean, this was a big budget kind of A-list picture. It had the money behind it. Um, it, it had the the power behind it. And and there is a real, there is a real definite nightmarish quality to it that that is kind of shocking for an A-list picture. So, uh, John, I'm not sure what your history was, if you even knew about the film. I know you had just said when we were watching it, I don't know if you were even aware that Del Toro was making a remake of the film or a remake of the novel. So what did you know kind of coming into it and what'd you come out with uh, once you finally saw it? I, this is something where I knew, I didn't even know that Del Toro was making his remake. Uh, I knew nothing about the original. This was, you had said, I'm picking Nightmare Alley and I saw it on the Criterion Collection. I was like, okay, here we go. I, <clears throat> going completely blind. Um and I think my immediate takeaway from the movie was how much plot they go the movie goes through, how what I was expecting. Cause like in the in the initial intro sequence, or like in the in the in the in, in the initial part where um where he's trying to get the code uh from Xena, you could do a whole movie just around that. The movie where Stanton and Xena uh, conspire to, you know, uh, or are they the 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 relationship between Stanton and Xena and Pete um, form the basis of a movie like some kind of love triangle movie where there's a betrayal, there's a getting of the code. That I at first thought I thought that was going to be the whole movie, and I was like, okay, I could I could watch that, and then pretty quickly in like. Pete's out of the picture and Stanton's working his r routine with Xena and they're, they're like, they, it skips ahead. And then we move on to the next part of it. I'm like, Oh, okay. And then I think, well, 
this is going to be a while. And then it's sort of like it just the way that it sort of has different sections of the movie that just sort of it, it, it just seems to cover a lot of ground. Um, and I was and I wasn't expecting it. So it was it was very delightful in that sense, because I literally knew nothing about it going in. I think it's a I think to your point. Yeah, I was really surprised by how it keeps changing, especially how it changes location and it kind of changes plot mechanic. But like now having watched it in full, the thing that I come away with is it has an opening that kind of has like a like like the Chekhov's gun. We're going to talk about this one small thing just as an aside to really maybe kind of set the tone of the carny and the carny lifestyle. And then, yeah, it there could have been a whole movie just about the fact that he is the talker for a mentalist gig. Uh, Xena is the woman who plays the mentalist. And then her husband, Pete, uh, who's an out, alcoholic is the guy who kind of fixes the trick. So he sits kind of below her in a hidden area and feeds her the questions. And when she looks through her crystal ball, there's a mirror and everything works. And, but in their past life, they had wowed audiences with this secret code that they had come up with. And, you know, you would think that the whole movie is about Stanton's, you know, conniving to try to get that code from them so that he can um, kind of rise in, in, in the ranks. And that does happen, but it's only the first part of a whole series of layers where, yes, that does happen. And then in the act of doing that, he um, also starts to romance this girl, Molly, who is the partner of the strong man. And then that gets discovered. And then Molly and Stan are now married and on the run and doing the shtick that he stole from Xena in the city to the socialites. But then something happens there and he meets a, he meets a psychologist. And the psychologist is not really up and on the level either. And then those people start to connive and they start to um, bilk the wealthy out of even more money. And then something else happens there that kind of brings things to a crux. And the whole point of these machinations and these different layers is to kind of return him back to the beginning and then zing the punchline to the opening of the film. Um, so the thing that I really came away with and, and without kind of giving it away, um, I want to talk about the brief ending for a second. I loved the nature of build, 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 just to then collapse and bring you back to the beginning where I can then zing you with the punchline. And I think it's, it's very, very evident in this film. Um, listening to the commentary and reading about it, the um, studio did not like the ending. And they're like, you got to put a new ending on this. And you can literally see where this movie is supposed to end. One of uh, Stanton's kind of catchphrases is him saying, uh, baby, I, I was made for it. And he says that a number of times throughout the throughout the movie as he's doing scheme upon scheme. And the movie ends with an offer for a job. And uh, Stanton, who is now completely broken, says his catchphrase one more time. He goes, I was made for it. You know that in the original version of this, that's the ending of the movie. And I will suspect that that is probably how Del Toro is going to end his movie. This movie then tacks on a brief epilogue where um, there is hope and and um, he is saved by the love of Molly who, you know, finds him at the end and is able to kind of shed a little light. But um, taking that little piece out, man, I just love the way that the film works to kind of bring you back to that moment and twist it on its ear. In some ways, it had the feel to me a little bit of um, a Twilight Zone, uh, Twilight Zone Rube Goldberg contraption with the way that it did that. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I remember reading up that apparently the, the ending of the novel is, uh, let's put it this way, much more like the 
the, the ending of the novel is much more bleak and doesn't have that ending note of possible hope. But, and yeah, it'll be interesting when, if we, when we get to see the del Toro version, which one he goes with, I think that, <clears throat> well, not necessarily having a preference for one or the other. I, I do kind of like the way that this movie, the way that they set up the parallel of the relationship between Stanton and, uh, molly and xena and pete from the beginning i think that it does just sort of have a nice little bit of symmetry there without pr- without actually like projecting it because at no point in the movie did i think that this movie that's where this movie was headed was uh we're basically just going to have a similar kind of rise and fall um arc that specifically is meant to parallel the one you see at the beginning with different characters um but it's which is why which is why one of the things I think is strongest about the the plot of this movie as a whole is that it uh, is that it 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 keeps it, it doesn't feel obvious um, uh, in the I, I mean maybe if we go back and watch it a second time then uh, it'll start to feel more obvious. But the first time I was just like okay we're gonna do this and nope oh, plot change oh plot change and then at the end we're like then they come back and I'm like oh okay I get it this is this is where they. Um, this is where Pete and Stanton end up being shown to be similar characters, uh, ultimately in their end. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I think definitely there was no way watching the film. I knew where it was going and I, I, I am delighted by that. Um, performance wise too, I, I want to talk through, I mean, everyone I, I think really turns in some strong performances here, particularly for me. Um, Joan Blondell is Xena. Uh, I love her in the beginning. Um, and I, and I love kind of how she changes when we see her later, like the, the kind of desperation now that she sees Stanton has kind of risen in the ranks and is like the, the toast of the town. But I know maybe for you, this is probably your first, kind of time seeing Tyrone power on the screen. Um, I want to talk about him for a second because he, he, he has to go through that arc that we're talking about. He has to be the smooth talking swagger, romantic guy who can charm the pants off of any woman and pull the wool over the eyes of any man. And then to see him hit the arc that he hits and then be brought down to the level of, to your point, Pete, um, who in the beginning is the alcoholic partner of Xena, um, to see him at that same stage. And we definitely got to talk about his physical transformation at the end too. I think both of us really marveled that but i think it's a terrific performance I, I there are angles and just a real nastiness to him i never once throughout the movie liked him um <laughs> he's not a likable person but man he is a watchable person and i completely understand the charisma and power he holds over everybody that he talks to in the film there's a great moment early on where uh, the uh, local town sheriff is going to shut down, shut down the uh, carnival because of uh, uh, some of the clothes that the ladies are wearing and um, they're not making any headway with them. And Stanton um, kind of really quickly, he tears off his uniform. He's just like a regular Joe now in a T-shirt and jeans to kind of relate to the guy. And he pulls a number over the sheriff that is incredible to watch. I mean, it's easy to understand because it's all scripted and it has to work this way. But I, I am the way that they put you in the film at that point and you watch Stanton 
do his number on the sheriff and you gradually see the sheriff kind of change. Um, it's fantastic. And it just goes, it, it just really points to the power, the power that power had in this role and sets up a great dichotomy when you see how helpless he is at the end of the film. Yeah, like I mean, like even just something as basic as the man's, uh, and I don't know if this was his real name or his stage name. The man's name was Tyrone Power. Like that's some <laughs> that's some Simpsons Max Power level of awesome names right there. Like I already I'm bought in on that, and of course he is incredibly handsome. And yes, the moment where he sort of like pulls one over on the sheriff, I was like. Yes, taken aback at like uh, just how he effectively he was able to deal with people. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, I. It's interesting to. I'd be. I am curious now to go back and watch some of his more noble swashbuckling stuff, just to see. Just because like apparently that that stuff doesn't have this sort of seedier uh, dynamic to it. I'm just curious what it would be like to start with the one where he's kind of a dirt bag and then work your way backwards. <laughs> We're not in the recommendation portion yet, but go seek out Zorro. Go seek out his Zorro. It is wonderful. Uh, you know, and a, and a complete 180 uh, from what this character is, but still with the same charisma, right? So yeah, early recommendation. And, <laughs> fair enough. Um, I was thinking also about, and yeah, I gotta say, Joan Blondell as as Zena. She was, if, if there's something that about this movie that I kind of wish there, like, I I like how the plot was able to keep us guessing, but it does mean that there is less Joan Blondell in yes. the movie than I would have than I was expecting, and that's kind of a bummer because she was great. Uh, um, I I love the 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 way that like. The, the chemistry between her and Stanton and uh, even her and Pete, like she, the way she just relates to people, I was just like, this is an interesting person and I would like yeah. to see more of them. Uh, it does mean that when she sort of disappears for the most of the back two thirds of the movie, it, uh, it, it, it's kind of a bummer that she's, uh, she's not there sort of keeping things up. And I mean, I know that Molly is supposed to be the, the 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 younger sweeter like more naive person um but she just doesn't really hold a candle to to Zena. Yeah, she does what she has to do, right? And yeah. uh Co Colleen Gray who plays Molly, per perfect in the role, but it's not a role that's really meant to have as much bite. She's supposed to be the savior. Yeah, She's yeah, supposed to be the innocent. You know, I would c c compare more to um um the other primary character in this is um, the psychologist Lilith Ritter, who's played by Helen Walker, right? She's supposed to be, she's supposed to now, once Xena is out of the picture, she's supposed to have that more meaty role. And there is one moment, like when it comes to the end, and uh, he is, he is so superbly double crossed by her. Yeah. Um, it is when glorious and wonderful. And she's really good there, but it's the only scene with her, for me at least, where I'm kind of like, yeah, she's really sinking her teeth into this. There are a couple other opportunities where I would have loved to have seen that kind of passion from her and in her interactions with power. She j it's just not the immediate chemistry that Joan Blondell has. When they are together and there is that glint of romance between Xena and Stanton in the beginning, it is palpable. Um, and you don't buy it. It, it it almost turns into to to go back to one of our other movies uh, that we both loved. It kind of goes back to Body Heat a little bit. Like you know, I would have loved to have had that sense with the psychologist and and Stanton. So when that double cross does happen, it's even more juicy uh, because they do set up 
in an earlier scene that she's kind of falling for him. Um, and I guess, you know, in light of what happens, that's a ploy, but you don't really buy that she's falling for him. It's just kind of a, would you like to come back to my place? And he's like, what are you crazy? People are going to see us. We got to keep, we got to hang low. And she's like, oh, well, I tried. And it's just kind of, eh, it didn't seem like you tried that hard to kind of justify then or, or to make more uh, substantial the double cross that she does at the end. As wonderful, again, as it is, because it is diabolical and I did not see it coming. And it's wonderful how it's laid out. I just wish if they had reversed the roles and that was Joan Blondell doing that, man, that would have been a scene. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, I, I really have to give uh, Helen Walker props for that, for that reveal when she, she when she pulls the rug out under uh, Tyrone Powers legs, you're just, holy <laughs> shit. That was amazing. Um, and yeah, I think that, in terms of like some of the small eccentricities of like how the plot moves people in shifts people away in ways that you don't see, like it sort of defies some of our expectations. I got to say that I had to, the way that they eventually pair up uh, Stanton and Molly by having their quote unquote romance discovered. I, as I was watching it in the movie, like I had the Wikipedia plot summary up and I was like, wait, like this is, it felt like a thing that I wasn't sure I fully understood and had, and I read it and I was like, okay, I guess this is what's happening is that they're being shotgun married, but I'm not entirely sure that I would have tracked that from the thing I saw in the movie. And I'm not sure if that's just a failure of myself or just some cultural expectations that I'm just not <laughs> picking up on. It's um and if and and I think that this is probably has nothing to do with the movie because I'm pretty sure the actual code that they talk about about that Stanton wants to get from Xena and steals from her eventually is a MacGuffin. Um, but I did try really hard to focus when they explained how the code works. I would paid really close attention to like when to be like okay can i figure out what the code is and why there's no way because the code makes no sense the code makes no sense (laughs) it doesn't it doesn't work and wisely they don't tip their hand to it you just have to you know it's the it's you know it's the golden briefcase from pulp fiction or whatever it's just a thing you have to you know just accept that this is not what it is, but how people react to it. But that's another interesting thing that I really like about the movie is that it is it is definitely the MacGuffin, but it's only used for the first half of the movie. Like once he gets it, it becomes this whole other movie and there's no more – there's no MacGuffin at that point. Now it's just I've got the thing. I'm going to use it to bilk these people and then how much can I bilk the people and then, you know, do I bilk the people that I supposedly love and, you know, it just keeps – it just keeps going from there. It's uh, – but the, the more end of the I mo- think about it, the more I like it. <laughs> the, the movie, by the end, he's basically running a cult for rich people and bilking them out of their money. It's, yeah. it's like it's kind of impressive how it scales. Uh, <laughs> it scales very quickly. It scales <laughs> from I'm doing a show in a ballroom for socialites to this guy just bought me a building to start my own cult. <laughs> and I'm going to forget about the woman who uh, gave me, you know, who gave me a little dowdy house to start my cult because now I'm getting a whole building. It was it was crazy. It was also crazy. Just remember back in that time, um, you could carry one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a small envelope because there were thousand dollar bills at that point. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I was like, that's $150,000. You can literally put that in your coat pocket. Uh, and, and just how that, even that line, uh, how that $150,000 gets magically transformed to $150 is, is just wonderful. Um, yeah. I don't know that there's a whole lot else to go on with here. Uh, again, I, I don't want to really talk about the ending. I truly would wish people, um, if you have the opportunity, um, if you're going to movie theaters, um, I'm sure plot wise, uh, a lot of the same tenets will happen in the Del Toro version. If you are a Criterion lover, this is on the Criterion channel right now, both in America and Canada, which is not always the case for some of these films. So I would definitely recommend seeing it and then just kind of seeing how that, how the um the beginning and the end then just kind of meet and then see what you think but uh i'm i'm so glad you got a chance to see it and to and to get turned on by the power of tyrone power cuz now we definitely i'm going to make it a goal next year that we're going to talk about we're going to talk about zorro maybe we'll talk about like we'll do an episode on precursor superheroes and we'll figure out ways to kind of fit that movie in just so i can force you to watch it <laughs> I mean, you, you, I'm already sold. You don't have to like, you can put down the gun. <laughs> I've I'm already agreed to, to I'm it. I'm going to want to talk about it too. We're going to have to make it official. <laughs> okay. Stop, please. I've already said yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, speaking of uh, movies involving marginalized uh, circus folk uh, who will then many years later go on to be played by uh, Bradley Cooper, uh, why don't we segue into our next film, uh, which is David Lynch's The Elephant Man. <laughs> So, The Elephant Man is, uh, as I mentioned, directed by David Lynch, and it came out in 1980. Um, I've had this one on my Criterion shelf for, I don't know, a few months up to a year. Who knows at this point? Time is meaningless. Um, but uh, this was the one for me that uh, I really needed to catch up on, largely because anytime I suggested it to my better half, she would say, I dislike this movie greatly. No, thank you. Um, so, this was my uh, opportunity to sort of um, basically, you know, tell my wife to go watch her own shows while I watch The Elephant Man. Uh, like it's some kind of shameful, dirty secret or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, this, um, I mean, I'm sure at some point we'll probably do a Lynch episode more generally. That just seems like an obvious pick. Um, but just real briefly, my, like, I've seen a scattershot of David Lynch's films and I'm a big Twin Peaks fan. Um, I, it, this was one that I just haven't gotten around to yet. And I, aside from the fact that I, th it fits the theme of picking Criterion movies that we hadn't uh, gotten around to watching yet. Uh, I think where we need to start with is that for this being his second film, to me, it feels like we'll talk about its relative merits in the, in the whole of his work, but I feel like this is probably one of his most um, conventional, like, Stand like, and I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean that in terms of like, if you're watching a movie and you want to understand what's happening, um, just literally the basics of I understand the things that I'm seeing on the screen. I feel like this is probably one of his most like 
easily easy to follow uh, films. Would that would that track for you? Yeah, and I think that comes from probably a couple of reasons, right? So probably most famously about this film, this was um, produced by Mel Brooks, uh, which I I find endlessly fascinating, and we can talk about how Lynch was picked and everything. But this is also um, not fully formed from Lynch's head. So there were two other people who had written the screenplay. So this was kind of already formed by the time that it was brought to Lynch, and then uh, Lynch definitely added his own, you know, singular touch to the screenplay. And um, in the film, you can see that as well. But I think that helps to kind of um, ground the focus and ground the narrative in a way that the stuff that purely comes out of his head, like the previous film, Eraserhead, just can't do. Um, and I will talk about it when we talk about the thing proper, but I have, this was your first time seeing it. I'd seen it twice before. Um, probably the last time I had seen it I mean, years ago, I have not seen it in forever. Um, so I had rented it because I don't have the Criterion Collection. I had just recently corrected that as of this afternoon. So it's en route. Uh, but thankfully, Amazon had a 4K um, edition of it. Uh, so I could see it, uh, you know, as, as nicely as possible for our um, discussion today. And I, I came away from the film very differently than I have in the past. So looking forward to talking more about that. So real quick, uh, The Elephant Man is a... Uh, is a historical dramatization about the like uh, the life of uh, Joseph Merrick. Um, in the movie, he's referred to as John, but um, mostly called by the his nickname, the Elephant Man, uh, a man who was uh, who had severe uh, deformities, uh, physical deformities in his body, and uh, <laughs> it's interesting to see David Lynch take on sort of a uh, like a real life, like try to, uh, again, I think it has to do with the, the screenplay sort of existing before Lynch, but to him taking on sort of the, a real life person and sort of the, and how he interprets that and, and, and deals with it. Um, Joseph Merrick, uh, it largely covers, starts with him as a, as a performer in a, in a circus. Um, and he's an attraction where people can go and gaze upon the, the horrors of the man with the incredibly deformed, uh, face. Um, and then from there he meets, um, he meets a doctor played by Anthony Hopkins, who sort of first, uh, basically he takes, uh, the elephant man played by John Hurt uh, to do uh, to present to his medical colleagues and sort of continues that sort of we're going to show this man off, but just to instead of people going to a circus, it's to medical professionals. And then from from there, it's sort of he enjoy the uh, John Merrick gets to enjoy a little bit of uh, attention from the upper class of uh, of London society for a short time. And then sort of the last half of the film sort of covers his sort of the tragic end of his life um, as the attention turn. Well, the attention has always been bad in, in some senses. There's always had negative connotations to it, but the, the darker underside of why people are fascinated with him sort of takes over and basically res it results in him passing away. And that's sort of the movie in a nutshell. Um, what I think stands out to me about this movie as a first thing is how Lynch uses his black and white photography skills to at first have John Hurt in shadows and you're you're fully set up to expect 
a like an old school 40s monster movie so like even some of the stuff that we've talked about previously in in other episodes of this podcast but then when the there's a crucial moment at the beginning near the beginning of the film where uh Anthony Hopkins and his boss realize that John Hurt, uh, the elf, uh, aka the Elephant Man, um, is actually like a fully, not just completely function, normally functioning uh, in terms of his mind, um, but is incredibly well read and cultured, and is, uh, um, and in that moment, from then on, the movie actually the lighting around him changes. And so you, you don't see him as like scary shadows in the distance that it's just, he's just a fully lit regular character talking to other characters and that changes and the way that the, the lighting and the use of shadows changes how you perceive him. And he's just, yes, he's has his physical deformities, but he's, but it doesn't for after that first chunk of the movie where you're led to believe that this is some kind of grotesque monster. Once the switch happens, He's just a dude. Um, and the movie, I think one of the things I like about this movie is that A, interrogates Anthony Hopkins' own motivations for trying to, quote-unquote, rescue him from the circus. Um, but also just, like, people... Like, there are definitely people who want to take advantage of him, but there are also people who are just like, no, nah, you're awesome. You're cool. I like you. Let's hang out. Let's be friends. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of my first uh, immediate takeaway watching this for the first time. Yeah, I I think watching it again now, um, after having not seen it for years, the thing that I really come away with more than anything else is um, kind of how my perspective of who I follow has changed. Uh, I, probably the first and second time I watched this, I it's not fair to say that he's my entryway in, but um, Hopkins' character, uh, Dr. Treves, Freddie Treves, um, you feel kind of like he is the character. He discovers, uh, we'll call him John Merrick because that's what's used in the film, discovers him and then sets up, um, <coughs> excuse me, to your point, the parallel of him saving him from a life of kind of carnival attraction, um, drama from, uh, Mr. Bites played beautifully by, uh, I think it's, is it Freddie Jones? Who plays him? Um, it, just a disgusting, despicable character. Uh, and how, by dint of what Treves does by showing him off to the London Medical Society and then introducing him into society, it plays the parallel of, is Dr. Treves doing the same thing? And then how that kind of changes. Um, this time watching it today, um, my perspective was firmly with John Merrick the entire time. So much of that is a credit to John Hurt's performance, but I come away with this film more than anything else, just completely um, devastated by by his humanity and his humanity in the face of some atrocious behavior, um, even when that behavior is seemingly coming from a well-intentioned stance. And I think maybe part of that is just everything that we've seen in the last year and a half to two years, um, you know, being so upfront and visible. But man, there are, there are more than a few moments that just devastated me to watch his humanity and his compassion in the face of just some truly horrific things. And even just in the face of some things that 
are not horrific, but are just the the norm at the time and even now of people seeing things that they don't understand. You talk about like the outsider mentality and, and how that plays as a parallel to Nightmare Alley. I very much was in tune with that uh, in this film. And again, just awed by how good Lynch is at framing some of those pieces. Uh, to, to your point, the dark kind of curious scar, and I just said that word wrong and I'm not drinking today, but just the dark shadows and, and kind of film noir play in the beginning and how they gradually lighten and lighten um, until we get to the ending. Uh, there's that, but also in how beautifully um, understated and kind of quiet some of the performances are um, when they play against John Hurt. And probably the one that I'll talk about the most, I, I know both you and I were talking today about like, you know, there's, you know, at least one scene for each of us that completely devastated us. Um, and for me, that scene, and it's probably my uh, one of the, my two favorite scenes in the entire film, is when uh, Dr. Dr. Treves brings uh, John Merrick home for tea and introduces him to his wife, who is at first, you know, she's very composed. You can see that she's a little freaked out and then starts to... Um, starts to talk to him and they share pictures of their... Um, of, of Treves' family and children and... Merrick brings out a picture of his mother uh, to show to them, and then he just kind of very quietly asks, I wonder, you know, if I found her now, if she would love me for who I am. And Treve's wife just breaks down. <laughs> it's such a, it just, it completely destroyed me. I, I was sobbing at that moment because it's just so beautifully illustrates. There are multiple ways to take it, but the way that I take it at the time is there's this woman who had preconceived notions of this person. And finally gets to a moment of pure empathy. What must it be like? And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful rephrasing of a statement made much more verbally before with John Gilgood, where John Gilgood says, uh, can you imagine what this guy's life must have been like? Because they finally realize that he's not an imbecile. He's not an idiot. He's in fact very intelligent and very empathetic. And, uh, Hopkins says, yes, I believe I can. And Gilgood says, no, you can't. Uh, and that same thing comes to bear in the scene with um, Treve's wife and Merrick, where she bursts into tears because there's that sudden empathetic moment of, oh, my God, what must this person's life have been like up until this point? And still to just have this innocent, almost angelic thought of, I wonder if my mother would love me if she had seen me now. And it just completely broke me. Um, and there are few moments of just true kindness and empathy that are scattered enough throughout the movie to kind of offset some of the horrific nightmarish portions as well. And that's really where I fell hook, line, and sinker for this more than I have any other time that I've seen it. Yeah, I think that for me, the, the empath, uh, the, the moment of empathy that struck with me the most was actually when his friend, the performer, like when he gets, finally gets to go see the theater, when she does the dedication to him. Uh, yeah, and Bancroft. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, Mrs. Kendall's, uh, when she does the, the dedication to him and there's no trace of voyeurism or like, look at this guy. Uh, it's just, just this dude is, for fucking awesome and he's sweet and he's kind and he's wonderful and he's so amazing i'm so glad that he was able to be here no like no condescension or mockery or just just sincere appreciation for this in front of and then 
having everyone else follow that lead with the with the ovation afterwards that was probably the moment that that hit for me in a sort of kind and endearing way yeah um to contrast against that the 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 part of the movie where um where jim the the porter basically brings in a bunch of people into his room and uh, they basically force women to kiss him and pour alcohol on him is probably the angriest uh, that I have been watching a movie. Um, it, it provokes such a visceral fucking hatred in that moment. I was so unreasonable. Well, I mean, I think you're, yeah, it's effective in that way, but like, I was really mad watching that scene. I was so mad. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I live in the year 2021, where uh, people seem by and large to not want to respect my need, uh, my almost societal need to keep their distance uh, because of uh, factors outside of my control. Um, Not that, you know, I'm thinking everything relates to the pandemic, but in that moment, I was just like, get these fucking people out of here. They, this is, this would be bad for anyone, but especially for someone, uh, for someone like Mr. Merrick, it was, it was singularly revolting in the way that you would expect in, in some key moments in other parts of David Lynch's, uh, in other films, that, that part for me was just so terrifying. Yeah. It's, and it's, and it's played, you know, if, if Lynch is a master of anything, we we always tend to talk about his kind of visual aesthetic and, and we can definitely talk about, there are some extremely Lynchian moments in this film. Um, but not nearly as talked about enough, but I think just as important is he is a master of sound design. He is a, and he did the sound design for this film. And that moment, um, that moment in, in, in particular, especially in the chaos of the swirling and the pouring of the alcohol and then making the the women kiss him. Um, And there's an earlier moment where um, Bites, who is now lost Merrick and is trying to get him back, um, comes to the hospital and he's able to kind of finagle his way through because there is a fight between these two women and they're just, they're just ripped and bloody and the nurses are trying to kind of keep them at, at a distance. The sound is, it's, it's, it's this nasty caterwaul of just discordant tones and screeching and chaos. And it is, it, I think it does just as much as what you're seeing to make you as angry and as uncomfortable as you get in those moments. Likewise, um, there's a scene later on where he, uh, uh, just to very quickly sum up this part of the, the, the plot. So, uh, bites in that whole fiasco of the liquor and the women kissing them bites is there. Um, after everyone leaves, he takes him and absconds with him and brings him to the continent, uh, which is France in this, in this case, um, and puts him back in the traveling carny show. And, um, Eventually, uh, there's a whole sequence there where he is rescued by none other than R2-D2, Kenny Baker himself. So a quick Star Wars reference for anyone watching, uh, listening to the podcast. Uh, Kenny Baker saves him, gets him on a boat uh, back to... Um, Back to Great Britain. And then there's another horrific episode where he's, um, teased mercilessly and then chased and then, you know, finally cornered, um, in what looks like a lavatory. And it's, it's the, 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 if you know anything about the elephant man from like jokes or references and stuff like that, it's the part where he screams out, I am not an animal. I am a human. I am a man. Um, and it's an extremely powerful moment, but each of those moments I think are made so much bigger and so much more, uh, emotional because of the sound and the chaos that that Lynch brings to those those pieces. 
Yeah, I I agree. The 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 sound stuff, especially when it's like throbbing, like the industrial sort of yeah. grime is yeah, that that to me feels like yeah, one of the signature Lynch stuff that yeah. is Clinging really cool. Work, it's a Lynch film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, especially applied to again a script that sort of predates him, that sort of grounds him, and and that that kind of makes me again no complaints about the rest of Lynch's career at all. Um, at least as far as I've seen. Maybe when I've watched Inland Empire, I'll I'll feel different. Who knows? But uh, the but it does sort of ask an interesting what if question for me at least, which is that like w- what would be a lynch type career where he did the more of those kind of works like what if he had taken on return of the jedi for example like i feel like there's enough by that point star wars had enough sort of uh foundation and structure to it that it wouldn't be a lynch type thing as it were but he could really fuck with it in a way that would have you know i mean again I like Return of the Jedi just fine, but if there was more opportunities for him to sort of take existing projects and just make them weirder, would that be that? That I, I don't know. I, I would find that interesting, even as uh, even as much as I like the stuff that he did spend the rest of his career making and continues to make because he's still alive, obviously. Well, what might be interesting to then check out, and maybe we'll figure out a way to fit this into another episode, is he did do this one more time. He did the straight story, uh, which is based on a true story um, and is it is very different, I think, than everything else he's ever done with Richard Farnsworth uh, about the guy who drives a tractor across the country to visit his family. Uh, so that might be a way um, in to kind of see, uh, hey, what, what if without actually fundamentally changing the nature of time, which is probably beyond our control. <laughs> I wanted to ask you one more thing. Um, the other thing that really affected me on this, um, and we talked earlier too, I'm, I'm at a point right now where I do love David Lynch. I love all of his work. Um, I've seen all of his work uh, with one exception, and uh, I'm hoping to fix that over the holidays. I have still not seen the uh, return of Twin Peaks. I haven't watched the new season yet. I need to do that. <laughs> but, oh, um, my friend. Uh, <laughs> we can talk about that. I want to talk about something else though, really quick. Uh, yeah. I, uh, so it, uh, I, I have seen this before. I knew how it ends. And I think this is one of those films we were talking about like, oh, maybe I'll watch if – I, if I watch Nightmare Alley again, I'll, I'll understand some more of those parallels. This was a movie that got exponentially better for me upon – the repeated viewing because knowing that it ends how it ends and spoiler alert. I mean, essentially after going to the, um, the show, which is very Lynchian in its presentation as well. I really loved how he does that. Um, and gets the accolades from Kendall and, and Bancroft. He returns to his room that night with, um, Anthony Hopkins and, Everything is very quiet and it's very kind of tentative. And you even see that in Hopkins' performance. He feels a little like, well, I guess I'm going to go. Uh, I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to leave. And Merrick thanks him very much. And it's alluded to earlier that he has to sleep in a certain position because if he lays down like a normal person, he will asphyxiate himself. And he's never been able to do that. Uh, and we come to the moment now where he – really feels like a person. I think what that sequence does and when Kendall kind of presents him and everyone stands up and applauds him, to your point, they see him as a person. They see him as a man, not as an attraction, not as a monstrosity and not as a curiosity. He has gotten the taste of what he has always wanted, to be treated like a person. Um, 
and he makes the very conscious decision to die, uh, to lay down, knowing that it's going to kill him because he's gotten the taste of humanity that he needed. And watching it now, knowing that that's going to happen, it, it that whole end sequence is just completely devastating to me because I know the choice he's about to make. And Hurt's performance cannot be... Uh, cannot be given enough credit because now knowing that it's going to happen and watching how he says goodbye to Greaves and how he kind of sets everything and finishes his cathedral, um, that he had been building this whole time in his room. It's just so beautiful. It's so sad and lovely and beautiful. And as much as I want it to be this kind of beautiful ending, it, to your point, the the anger that you had in some of the other scenes, it didn't make me angry, but just made me – it was so despairing to think that, you know, this one taste of humanity that this guy got was enough for him to then just say, I'm just going to now end my life. I've gotten what I needed. I don't need to be here anymore and and, and go. And it just made the ending that much more um, – impactful for me than it has the previous times I've done it. So much so that at this point, I know it's just still very fresh in my mind. This might be my favorite Lynch film, strangely enough, because it really does have that narrative convention and that grounding, but it definitely has enough of his visual and oral touches to make it his own piece. You would never watch this movie and think it's not a David Lynch film. Uh, but it, it's just, it's so beautiful. It's so delicate. It's so much lighter than anything he's ever done. I, I have completely fallen under this film spell right now. And, uh, I believe you had, uh, you had hinted at this beforehand, but this is probably a chance for me to ask, do, do we, do we throw this up there on our, on our list of, uh, movies alongside stuff like Faces, Places, Army of Shadows, Amadeus, that kind of stuff. So, that, I mean, does it fit for you? I mean, John, for me, if we're just going by number of times I cried during the watching of a film, this qualifies. <laughs> it definitely qualifies. Uh, I love this movie. Uh, so if it worked for you in a similar fashion enough that you would nominate it, I, I, I definitely would put this up on that list. I think that, um, Again, knowing that my my Lynch knowledge isn't as as complete, uh, and there's still other things to do, I will say that this I was I was not I did not see this coming. Um, it kind of blindsided me. Um, I again I, I was just like, well, it's you know, it's it's David Lynch criterion. I'm sure that there'll be some cool shit, but like, and I'm I'm always down for uh, interesting stuff whenever. Uh, whenever I can, but I was not expecting to be quite as hooked into this movie as I was. And in a way that I feel the stuff like face place and army of shadows similarly sucker punched me. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a, I'm a hundred percent on board with throwing this up on our Yay. list. Of, I don't remember what we called it, but the, whatever list we have of great movies that uh hall of fame, whatever that this definitely this definitely makes the list for we me. We don't know because it's so rare that one makes the list. <laughs> it's true. And, and and I think that largely has to do, like you were talking about uh, John Hurt's uh, performances, like seeing how he approaches it towards the end, like the, the moment where he reveals that he actually knows all of that particular Bible passage. And they're just like, why oh, did yes. you never speak before? And he's like, because I was scared to. Because that that moment where you realize that he as a means to survive 
and to like he does the carny act and the 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 i can't you know speak act mostly as a survival mechanism and that in a given the chance to show himself and reveal himself more fully uh it takes a lot for him to feel safe and uh and and to try and show himself fully to everyone else to show his humanity ultimately does set us on the path that leads to that end moment where he's like okay i've done what i've come to do and you know he he it, it, it that to me feels like the start of the the path that leads to the ending point that you mentioned at the end of being like that that uh that's so profound so yeah i'm i'm all props in the world to john hurt on this one and 100 this i think this needs to be on the list awesome fantastic i don't know then that there's a better way to wrap up uh this portion of the segment john so maybe we should just jump into recommendations absolutely and uh, to thread the needle of the end of our previous conversation, the official list uh, title is Cinema Duel Mountain of Gloriousness. And uh, as of right now, I've added uh, the Elephant Man to it. Um, it's time for our last segment of uh, the episode where we recommend other films of any particular nature, whether it's on topic or not. Um, I quickly walked through or quickly went through my list of movies that I had previously or had recently watched seeing if there was anything that met the the criteria of movies that I needed to catch up on that had been on my list for a long time and while I don't have it on physical copy yet I finally watched uh, Jacques Tati's Playtime uh, a movie that I literally had no concept for what it was what I was about to watch um, I had heard one person say it was his favorite movie of all time. And the concept of watching a movie in which you're basically just watching background extras for two hours um, is, it was mind bending. But once I realized what was happening, I thought it was, it was wild and uh, starting to pick up the small th plot threads that actually do happen. It's just that it's, it happens it's so meticulous and at such wide angles that like, it just feels like you're watching background stuff happening, even though uh, everyone is sort of doing, there are stories that happen and follow. You just have to like lean in a bit more to focus on it. I thought it was crazy. I loved it. That is good news to hear because <laughs> uh, I love uh, Jacques Tati. I have the box set. Uh, and I have watched um, M. Hulot's Holiday and Mon Uncle like half a dozen times, and I've still never seen Playtime. <laughs> uh, so I will be rectifying that on the Criterion Catch-Up. <laughs> and maybe Absolutely. I'll make that the first one just to get that one over with. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, and, and I think that you'll have a better experience because I'm just going to tell you now, uh, there is like – if you're wait if you're what like when you watch a movie there's usually like some kind of table setting like some introductory stuff before you get to the main thing that the thing is going to be about if you know that that thing it never happens if you're just like just vibing on the stuff or if you're just like paying attention to the small little details of just the like again it's completely there it's not that it's haphazard everything is clearly and meticulously put together it's just um yeah, once if you know that going in, then it'll take you less time to figure it out than it did me. So <laughs> awesome, uh, good recommendation. And uh, let's just—I'm going to just put it here for posterity. Now that'll be the first Criterion catch-up. <laughs> Excellent. 
How about you, man? Uh, so for me, I haven't been doing a whole lot of movies. Um, the few movies that I have seen, I really won't recommend. Uh, I have been catching up with television because uh, it's not something I've had a lot of time to do. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I won't have a lot of recommendations there either because I've been let down by some of what I've been seeing. So I'm going to talk about one thing uh, that everyone and their brother in the at least the music community has been talking about lately. And that is that last night, my wife and I finally finished the um I think it's two and a half, two and a half, like seven and a half, eight hour documentary by Peter Jackson, The Beatles Get Back. Um, if you are a Beatles fan, it's 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 almost like required. You have to see this. Um, uh, if you're a Peter Jackson fan, I think it's worth seeing because the thing that's so beautiful about it is that um, – Yes, it's, it's, it's 150 hours of the Beatles, uh, in the month that they are trying to create Let It Be and do this kind of like TV show slash concert and how that morphs and what happens, whittled down to about eight hours. But Peter Jackson took everything at his disposal that he's used for films like the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit trilogy and King Kong. And he put all of those effects toward the restoration of this audio and video. So if you're a Beatles fan, you've never seen the Beatles like this. You've never seen this look, this high definition, this intimacy of, for my money, one of the greatest musical acts of all time working through their process. I love process. I love to watch people like go about creating the things that they create or doing the things that they do. So I'm a sucker for that kind of genre anyway, even if it's not music related. The fact that it is music related and it is for one of my favorite bands um, of all time was just kind of icing on the cake to watch the different dynamics between Paul, John, George, and Ringo and, and what happens and the inherent drama that unfolds over some of this. Very famously, George quits the band at one point and uh, then gets back, but you hear like them struggling over what to do and how to address it. You see the genesis of songs like Get Back and Let It Be and uh, Across the Universe. I'm not choked up from the Beatles. I'm choked up from slight congestion in my head. So I'm not that emotional about it. Um, it's also wildly funny. Uh, one of the things that I'll say is that uh, the Beatles are kind of goofballs. The Beatles are not afraid to curse and joke around and throw ridiculously stupid lyrics as they're kind of working through their songs. We were watching last night and uh, at one point, John and Paul just start, uh, there, there's a section they're singing. Um, I think they're singing one after the 909 and they've done it so many times that they just kind of do weird things to amuse themselves. So they're both doing it without trying to move their lips. And they're just focusing on each other, singing with these insane grins and their lips not moving to see if they can kind of like do a ventriloquist version of one after the 909. And John Lennon looks positively possessed. And my wife could not stop laughing. Uh, there is another section where they're all just sitting down listening to a replay and Ringo just very quietly and politely goes, hey, I just uh, farted. I don't know if anybody needs to know that, but I thought I'd let you know I farted. <laughs> People get up because it stinks. You know, it's just there's a humanity that Peter Jackson found in this that is that is delightful. So if you're a fan of the Beatles, 
you got to see it. If you're not a fan of the Beatles, but you're interested in seeing kind of the creative process at work, I still think there's a lot of worth here. Yeah, it's pretty long. <laughs> so, you know, don't watch it all at once. Uh, my wife and I did it like about four or five bite-sized chunks. We watched about an hour and a half each time and and uh, got through it quite nicely. Can't recommend it enough. That... Um... <clears throat> Yeah, I think I could probably see myself watching that at some point. I can't say I have the I can't say I have the Beatles attachment, but uh I mean, I think a process uh, a process about musical like about making music from Peter Jackson would be compelling enough on its own to at least give it a shot. Um yeah, I think that's probably going to do it for uh, for us today. Uh, uh, I'm excited at the prospect of seeing more of Chris's uh, writing on the site in the new year, and uh, I keep promising to finish that Agnes Varda series. Uh, hopefully, with a week off of work uh, on the holidays, I'll just be able to quickly uh, wrap that up, and uh, we can start thinking about uh, what might be next uh, for the sites uh, for writing on the site as far as uh, cinemaduel.com is concerned. Um, we missed our uh, technically our two year anniversaries back in October, but uh, this is the end of our two second full year uh, doing the podcast. And uh, it's again, continues to be a lifeline for me in a sea of shit. That is uh, my current life. So thank you, Chris, <laughs> as always for, uh, for doing this with me and hope that everyone else, uh, you know, takes care of each other, stays safe, and watches some good movies. Two years. Hooray us. Look at us. Yeah, I know, right? We, <laughs> it's it's, it's that Paul, it's that Paul Rudd thing. Who would have thought, right? Not Who us. Thought? <laughs> Look at us, man. Look at us. Wow, yeah, this would be episode 26 for us. Uh, that's crazy. 25 because we did the, the Seven Samurai. We, we did the Kurosawa thing at one point. Yeah, uh, yeah I... Uh, Echo that completely, John. Uh, this is a lifeline. And it's funny because I am so much an introvert and I always have that kind of like hour or two or usually it's like the day before I'm like, oh, I got to talk again tomorrow. I don't know if I want to talk again tomorrow. But the second I sit down with you, uh, it becomes just so immensely enjoyable. Uh, so here's hoping that uh, we could do this for at least another two years, uh, maybe get another two listeners. That would be fantastic because uh, uh, I, I, I definitely enjoy doing this. So not sure what 2022 is going to bring uh, in terms of episodes, but uh, I guarantee that uh, probably, John, you and I will be talking over next week on our breaks to figure out what it's going to be. <laughs> Look forward to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, and, and since you you mentioned the two listeners i should shout out uh dylan from diary of doom past guest who uh who rated us on spotify and was kind enough to share the screenshot uh with me of having rated it uh where it said you're one of the first people to sub- to rate this podcast and i was like you know what i'm gonna take that as a compliment <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much dylan and thanks to everyone uh I guess if you want to rate us on Spotify, I'll, uh, I guess I have, I guess it tickles my ego enough to, uh, to, to respond to that. So thank you again. And, uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks everybody. Be safe and be well and have a great new year because we'll see you on the other side. Mm-hmm.